0: Welcome to the Celtic Way Podcast, where we look to bring a fresh vision of spiritual life by nurturing a vibrant, evolving, and sustainable life with God in nature. Celtic spirituality is an ancient tradition of seeing God in everyone and in everything. This episode is part two of a conversation with Ben Soy about his work with the homeless and how hospitality plays a role in that.
1: It's good to see you guys again and i really appreciated our last podcast been about homelessness and it left me with some growing questions and and some conversational tidbits i'd like to have with you in our audience and i want to get to one of them right away because i just had a conversation this weekend with one of my grandsons about people who stood on the counter with the signs and how much they piss him off and irritate him you know he's like what's wrong with these people you know Well, so that led to, I had to pay for dinner, but it led to a really good conversation. And one of the things he didn't get was that one of the significant causes of homelessness has to do that these people don't have a safety net. They don't have a support like friends and family, and you have had personal experience you've had, experience through people you've worked with. I just want to hear from your narrative about what that's about and how you see it impacting our culture today. Yeah.
2: Well, we are more lonely, isolated than we've ever been as a culture. And and I don't know if this is the reality, but the perception is, I, I talked to 10 people a week, who talk about why are we so divided? You know, liberals don't interact with conservatives, rich people don't interact with poor people. And I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's because I've sought out community with people who are different, but I just have friendships across all those differences. And it has checked that idea for me, that idea that like somebody is homeless because of their own choice or decision-making. And I think really the experience that really brought it home for me is I've worked for nonprofits for like 13 years, and I've historically thought about myself as a helper, mm. someone who shows up for others. But last year, March, April, 2020, when the stay-at-home order and COVID is raging and surging across Colorado, my wife and I, we lost our jobs within the same week. Um, Both of you? Both of us. Yeah. Kate lost her job first. And she goes, thank God Ben's still employed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh... (laughs) And then, and
2: then, then, you know, literally three days later, they said we were going down to part-time work. And then they eventually said, well, actually you're, you're, you're laid off. Um, Effective immediately this, this weekend, this, this week. Mm -hmm. And so that was a time of great anxiety, and it was a time of great uncertainty for us. And so, you know, I do what most people do on on a time of trouble is I think, like, who who are my most trusted, beloved Mm -hmm. people? I just need... I just need some encouragement. I just need some prayer. I just need probably some help with some things,
0: right? Ben, you're a better person than me, because usually what I do is I swear and throw things at that
2: point. (laughs) (laughs) So I always joke on moving day that whenever I move and people actually show up for me, I'm like, this is why I cultivate friendships. (laughs) So people show up. And it was a similar moment where it was like, all right, this is a really bad week, right? And this is, there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty. And so I just texted all the safe and steadfast people I knew. And then, pretty soon within our larger network, there were friends that were conspiring on behalf of us. And we had two separate people show up almost immediately with a month of rent. So, like, two months of rent were paid for. Wow. We had people show up almost immediately, like that day, with King Super's gift cards, which is the local grocery store. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of church people. So, church people show up with a hot meal in a time of trouble. Okay. <laughs> so, we, we had casseroles and, uh, and frozen lasagna and, and, and a bunch of stuff. And we went from a feeling of, are we going to be okay? Are we going to be able to make rent? Are we going to be able to stay in Denver expensive as heck Denver? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To within the same week, we had such a like a, an affirmation of the voice of God saying, like, I love you and your people love you, and your people are here for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there was a there was a sense of, you know, God moves through humans, right? And right. and God shows up for you. Through human interaction, and so we tallied it up. So it was about four months <laughs> that both of us were unemployed. And I'm a I'm a dramatic extrovert. I'm an Enneagram seven. I'm an ENFP. I'm like f- I'm freaking out because I a I have to stay at home. It's the middle of the stay at home order, but I don't have meaningful work to distract myself from my own sort of like anxiety, depression, confusion, whatever. So that was hard enough. But we never worried about the financial stuff because we tallied it up at the end of that four months. And people showed, I kept a spreadsheet, people showed up with uh, about $10,000. And so there, there were a couple of takeaways for me. One is like, I historically think about myself as somebody who helps, but I am deeply somebody who needs help. Every hour, every day, every week, I need support and I need care from others. So I'm not this fixer, changer, problem solver. I'm, I'm just a human being who lives in community and we all help each other. And the second thing was... Because I'd worked for nonprofits for 13 years and made nonprofit money, I realized that I had gotten really stingy with my own money. (laughs) I had been like, I give my time, but I don't give, you know, like whenever somebody would ask for, like there was a financial need, Kate and I would go, well, we don't know if they're worse off than we are financially. (laughs) And so we would rationalize like a stingy, ungenerous spirit. And I felt a little bit like Scrooge from Christmas Carol, where like I, I was just like, everything that I have is a gift. And so, especially because people showed up for us financially, we were like, the next time we hear of someone who's in a time of financial trouble, we're not going to debate it. We're not going to overthink it. We're just going to be like, yeah, totally. We're there. We can do it. And that was big for us.
0: I think, too, that you know, going along with your grandson, Scott, and your story as well, Ben, and I've been in similar situations, that it's so easy to look at people that are unlike us, in this case, we could call it the homeless population or somebody on a street corner in your situation that you're talking about, Scott, and view them as the other, view them as somebody that we can't relate to. And I think when we're talking about any people group or any generalization, the key is to To try to get proximity and uh, go back to what you said, Ben, I think we have to be intentional. If we want to be around people who are not like us, who are not similar to us, the only answer is to be intentional because in everyday ordinary life, we will just be around people that are mostly like us. And so I know for for me in my situation, I was a worship leader at a big church outside of Minneapolis. I'll never forget being on the edge of that stage, looking out, realizing, wait a second, all these people look like me. This isn't what Jesus talked about, and that's not what he lived. And I went and, and we literally quit our job within like two weeks of that experience because you know if you just allow yourself in the normal flow of life you'll find yourself surrounded by people that look like you make the same money as you do dress like you and so it has to be this intentional act in order for us to feel like that homeless person or that lgbtq person or that whatever pagan person is not the other we're humankind period
1: Good point. Then I want to get back to this thing about having a safety net and then cultivating friends, because I'm really with you that God does come in. And you said you experienced God through the compassion and caring and the generosity of so many people that I guess that most of your network was probably a circle of people in your church, right? My grandson kept telling me, but it says in the Bible, <laughs> this cracks me up because I don't think he has a Bible. God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> and I'm like, no, actually, that's not in the Bible. Well, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's like, no, it's really not. And so I don't want people to think God helped you because you're a good Christian boy. The numbers of homelessness in Denver are staggering like it is in all over the place. It's not that God doesn't love those people or care about them.
2: There's a Dorothy Day quote where she says the gospel takes away our right forever to determine who's deserving and who's undeserving of help. Even if we go back to the way the gospel was articulated to me when I was a kiddo in my Baptist church, it was the fact that God's compassion was for me even though I was a sinner and did not deserve that help. If you believe that, and you know that God's steadfast love is not for the deserving, those who have earned his love, it's just something that God chooses to give to people, then that takes away our right to feel better about ourselves and look down on other people.
1: As a Christian, I'm entitled, right, to have all my needs met.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Because I'm I'm hashtag blessed, right? Right. There's this thing you guys have come across it and it's it's infecting its way through the modern evangelical movement, but it's called the prosperity gospel, which is that God blesses those who are righteous with comfort, health, wealth. The implicit teaching in that theology is that if you have a lack of health, if you have a lack of wealth, and you have a lack of comfort, then you are not blessed by God, you are cursed by God. And it it reminds me of when, when the disciples of Jesus were walking around with Jesus, and they saw a man who was born blind, and they said, who sinned that that man was born blind, he or his parents? And Jesus said, it wasn't, it wasn't anybody's sin that caused it. And what Jesus actually said is, he's this way so God can show his glory. And Jesus ended up healing that guy, right? But there's also, there's a bunch of people that Jesus interacted with that he didn't heal too. There's something that is beautiful to see and to learn from folks who suffer. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. You know, in Matthew, it says blessed are the poor in spirit, but Luke in the Beatitudes, it says straight blessed are the poor," and there's something that's sick about an american religion that says that we have wealth because we're righteous and we deserved it and the the inverse of that is those people are poor because they are unrighteous and they they deserve their their own struggle or whatever. It's a messed up theology. It's a messed up philosophy and worldview. When you think that I have the things that I have because I deserve it, and those people don't have comfort, privilege, wealth, because there's something wrong about them, you're just not connected to the human experience.
1: Sadly, I think people can dismiss people on the street corner or people Living in blocks and rows of tents and sleeping bags and so on, as if they did something really horribly wrong. And and so now they're kind of reaping what they sow. But going back to the point when you talked to to our staff about people today are lonely, right? And what was it? Denver is the third loneliest city in the world. In the country. In the country. And, and not having that safety net. You work with people across the freeway from where we are now, right? Yeah. And those people are a stone's throw away from homelessness.
2: Yeah. yeah. So for five years, I was in a neighborhood called Sun Valley, which is Colorado's poorest zip code. It's a public housing community, so run by the Denver Housing Authority so, everybody has to be low income to live there. About half of our neighbors when we were there were refugees from places like East Africa, Somalia, Ethiopia, folks from the Congo, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, mostly Muslim. So, folks that had gone through a traumatic experience of wherever they were, so folks that get resettled as refugees, they have to be escaping persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution. So everybody who comes to the States as a refugee comes because they were the wrong sort of person. They were the outsider. They were the ethnic or religious minority. They were the political minority. So I think about the traumatic experiences that people have gone through and then most of our friends that were refugees, they were just starting fresh. They moved to Denver, Colorado. They got resettled here. They did have some support from their refugee resettlement agency who would get them stable housing, get them in touch with job resources, get their kids enrolled in school, that sort of stuff. But those refugee resettlement agencies are the definition of overworked and underappreciated. And they have capacity to like get somebody the basics and then move on to the next person that they're settling. So there's not deep ties with the resettlement agency. And then you find yourself in a low income community like Sun Valley, where you may not speak the same language or believe in the same God as other people around you. There's nothing wrong with them. In fact, they've had to show more perseverance and endurance than I've ever had to show as a human being, but they just don't have a social safety net. You've probably heard that poverty is not just poverty of finances, it's poverty of relationships, right? You end up in times of trouble because you run out of people to call on. And especially, this is a shock to the system for a lot of our Muslim friends and neighbors, because they're from such communal cultures to not have a safety net. And then to show up in a city like Denver, which is very much in the, what have you done for me lately sort of spirit. And we treat people like their cost benefit analysis. And as soon as they start costing us more than we get from them. We are slower to return that text message or phone call. The folks that we worked with in Sun Valley, Colorado's poorest neighborhood, refugee folks from across the world, our main task was to get them connected in healthy communities. So we would host conversation groups, we would host ESL classes, we would host dinners, we would get to know the youth and the students, we would connect them with American friends, mostly from local churches. And then we would do the work of teaching white Christian people how to have a healthy cross-cultural friendship <laughs> and make it clear that your agenda is not to fix or change or problem solve. You cannot hope in results in this relationship. You're there to just to be faithful. And so what we ended up doing is, is creating a really ragtag, strange, beautiful community of refugees from the Congo, the Middle East, and Iraq and Afghanistan and and white Christian people who were brave enough to want to pursue a long-term friendship with somebody. Yeah. And then and then you spread that work around so that sometimes the helpers who work for nonprofits, they get overworked and burn out because they feel like they're the only ones helping with any of these extreme needs. But if you spread the work around where you've got a hundred people in your community who also have intelligence, wealth some sort of privilege they can leverage then it's that's helpful for everybody
1: well and it's the mission you know we got something about the mission wrong about going out and evangelizing so people can get their soul saved i get all that but after that the whole mission when i drove by several church signs in the last few days just to notice what are they saying come and be a part of us grow our church increase our wealth No, 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 no. When I read the scriptures and I think about Wayne Meek's book, The First Urban Christians, which was so influential to me, realizing that the church began in this place across the freeway that you're describing. Immigrants, poor, marginalized, really basically hungry, no place to Call their own hardly any food, and what did the Christian Church do? The Christian Church is mandated through the Scriptures to be the presence of Christ to people in the world, and somehow it's these people that we quickly turn our backs on, and it's hard to be with them. But the stories of the Gospels, as you have pointed out again and again and again, shows where Jesus goes right down to the poor and the marginalized. And when you read the movement through the Acts of the Apostles, you read the Pauline literature, right, that there's always money available for the poor. There's always resources for the poor, because what grounds you, Ben, and your motivation to work with these people isn't coming from someplace from above, right? It's reading the scriptures through the eyes and the heart of the poor and marginalized, people who Jesus had clearly identified with when he says, foxes have den, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to leave his head. It's the scriptural impetus for us and for the ancient Celts that moved us in the direction that we went in.
2: Yeah. I think a lot about Luke, and I think a lot about Acts. And I I did a personal read-through of the Gospel of Luke, and one of the questions that I asked is, I'm going to notice all of the outsiders or the marginalized or vulnerable people in the narrative, and it's it it was like three or four people a chapter. You know, you start with the parents of John the Baptist who are elderly. Again, in a culture that that right. says, "What's the point of these people? They're old, right?" And we're barren for all these right. Earth. which means that according to their culture, they were worth even less. Then you have Mary, who is an unwed teenage mother, who when she finds out that she is going to be the mother of the Christ, she has her beautiful poem. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. He has exalted the humble. He has sent the full away hungry. And you go through the whole narrative of Luke, and it's every chapter, there's multiple characters who are outsiders, who are vulnerable, who are the people that don't fit in, or they're not the valued people. And then you get into Acts. And I think a lot about Acts 2, where it's a group of people, the narrative says it was God-fearing people from every nation on earth. So it was the whole known world had come to Jerusalem to worship. And people who were uh, hungry for the presence of God, but spoke a multitude of different languages. And one of the miracles that happens when the Holy Spirit comes down on Pentecost is that everybody hears what others are saying in their own mother tongue, in their own heart language. And so the very first miraculous movement that the Holy Spirit does is build a multicultural movement of immigrants and uh, refugees, poor folks, folks that were hungry, folks that were hungry not only for bread, but hungry for God, right? And then you get this beautiful picture in Acts 2 of a community, a new community across differences created and it's people who held all things in common. And if any of them, if any of the poor among them had need, then those who are wealthy sold their possessions in order to fill that need. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to breaking of bread and to prayer. As frustrated as I've gotten with modern church movements during my lifetime, and as maybe cynical and confused as I've gotten about like, If God is actually on the move in the world, where is that happening? I don't know if I see it a lot in some of the church expressions that I've been a part of. And where are like the Acts 2 Christians? Where are the people who would hold their personal possessions so loosely that they would hold all things in common and live in cross-cultural communities and be there for each other? That caused a lot of confusion and frustration towards some of my church experiences. And that's, I think, prompted me to go after some sort of community that was more cross-cultural, some sort of community that was more across difference and income level. And that's probably what prompted me to work at a place like Joshua Station with
0: our homeless friends there. I appreciate you sharing all of that. It's overwhelming when you read through the scriptures, how much the conversation is centered around not just poverty, but around the less than around the outcast. And I too, like my heart resonates with that. So desperately, the frustration that I've had in some of my work in these spaces is that people will pick out what they want to hear. And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten quoted the verse back to me that the poor will always be among us. And they use that as a way to say, so we don't need to worry about it. Let's just keep going. I mean, we can talk scripture all day long, but at the end of the day, if people's hearts are in a space where they want to hear what makes them feel comfortable, it just is what it is. Or it's like we, we add stuff to scripture, like God helps those that, <laughs> <laughs> that
1: help
2: themselves.
0: Yeah. And it just, it seems so anti-Jesus, you know? So if yes. our focus is following Jesus, those concepts seem so anti-Jesus. So you almost have to turn a blind eye to the vast majority of what you read to protect your comfort. And I think too often that's what we're doing. We're just protecting our comfort, especially in America. And that's not where we're going to find true beauty. And it's definitely not where we're going to find true actual hospitality.
1: Hmm. I think one of the things that pulled me into the ancient. Celtic tradition was their beginnings of how they began in a monastic community and they raised crops and they raised animals, and they didn't proclaim the gospel. They simply went through their liturgy of the hours of the day, which, of course, are based on the Psalms. They practiced Lexio Divina, that is the reading of sacred scripture in small groups, and immersed themselves into that. And then after about a year or so after they've raised their crops and they've raised their animals. And they've had these exchanges with people in the village that I would say are natural and neighborly and friendly. And when the monastery produced an abundance of crops, they would take it into the village and just give it to the poor. And if they had excess animals, they would do the same and they just shared life. And then... Only then were they ready to say, hey, do you want to come and pray with us at certain times of the day? And oh, yeah, and let us teach you how to read the scriptures. I see that in Philippians 2 where it says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But rather, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, found himself in a human in appearance. He humbled himself. And I think in the Celtic tradition, in the Eastern tradition, the goal of Christianity, if I can say this, is to become like Christ to put on the mind of Christ, to have the compassionate heart of Christ. Frankly, I don't think we can do this in American culture today without a real difficult relationship with people who are different and poor.
2: Dorothy Day talked about being evangelized and discipled by the poor. One of the quotes that's sort of written on my heart is, the wealthy need the poor more than the poor need the wealthy. so jesus said you cannot serve both god and money and so there is something inherently corrupting around the presence of overabundance and wealth there's something that gets into your heart and worms its way in and makes you care more about stuff and power and comfort and your own ability to sort of control your life because that's the illusion that wealth gives you is that i can control whatever variables right. happen to me right but my friends who are poor they know that life is chaotic and that they know that things might look different every minute every day but for those that that re- lean into their connection with god my fr- my poor friends that are really sort of cultivating an active relationship with god that's one of the reasons why they seek after God in a deep way is because life is so chaotic and they rightly recognize that they have very little control over
1: things. Yeah.
2: And so they need they need a sovereign god and a protector and a provider to care for them. And there's a very strange purity of faith that I've experienced with my friends who are believers and are poor that I have not experienced among my friends who self-identify as Christian but have everything in the world.
0: There's something to be said about desperation and a connection with God in the midst of desperation. And people who haven't experienced that on any level tend to struggle with their connection with God. Whereas like I've seen it in the prison system, I've seen it on the streets of like people that understand desperation and also have a connection to God. It almost seems like you find it in its purest form. And to go back to what you said, Scott, we struggle so much in America and in the West to connect With Jesus, because of how much prosperity and wealth that we have. Well, of course, how are we going to connect with a Jesus who is a poor man on the streets if we're not connecting with people on the streets in our country, which we don't? It's like one plus one in this situation actually equals two. There's no way to look at it. Other than that, I don't think.
1: (laughs) There was a teenage prophet named Jeremiah. He had this vision, and it was a reminder when God said to him, Stand by the ancient roads and look, perceive, ask for the pathways of old, which is the way to good, and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls." And I think in some ways this is what God's calling us to do. The ancient path is the path of Jesus and to look where He walked and walk where He walked. The Christian people today don't just need to be anti-cultural. We need to push back against some of the message of our culture. And I might say God needs to raise up some prophets to bring a prophetic voice to the institutional churches that somehow are buying into what the culture is telling us that is important.
2: You interact with churches, and you can tell within the first 10 minutes of meeting the leaders there, if they think about themselves as a liberal church or a conservative church. We're in an age where when you go down to a suburban Baptist church, they're more formed by cultural conservative values than they are formed by the historic person of Jesus and the historic gospel of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you go into some liberal progressive churches that are more formed by modern progressive values than they are formed by the person of Jesus and the historic teachings of Jesus. And we are right now stuck in a culture war between conservatives and liberals, but they both think that they're being faithful, especially religious conservatives and religious liberals. They both think that they're being faithful to their pure religion, but it's formed primarily it's Republican first and Christian second or progressive first and Christian second. And I think more and more folks in their twenties and thirties are just like, I I'm opting out, man, because I'm not in for this culture war.
0: And I've heard a lot of Catholic teachers talk about this concept of dualism. And now we find ourselves in the midst of that culturally and even religiously. You're either this or you're that. And it, it right. seems to me like if Jesus just showed up today, he'd, he would say something like, well, you've heard it said it's either conservative <laughs> or progressive. I say it's neither or something like that. No, because that's I mean, yeah. that's just the the type of thinking that he had he didn't have an either or type of thinking and and that again is just one of the ways where we're getting it wrong i think today
1: yeah i thank both of you for joining in on this conversation it's a complicated complex mess that we're in one thing that is clear we're all concerned about becoming like christ and becoming like christ means to love god to love our neighbors as ourselves with our whole heart, mind, and soul. And I'm glad we're in the messy business of figuring out what that looks like. And I really appreciated your part, Matt, about saying we have to be intentional about going to people who are just not like us. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Celtic Way podcast. Also, special thanks to Ben Soy for joining the conversation. For more information on Ben and Scott's work at Mile High Ministries, go to milehighmin.org. For more information on Celtic Way, you can go to celticway.org or find us on Facebook at Celtic Way. If you'd like to become a sustaining member of Celtic Way and this podcast, you can donate by going to celticway.org and clicking donate. Also, be sure to support the podcast by subscribing to it, giving it a five-star rating, and writing a review.